For those of you who, uh, this is your first time, we, we're, we have been studying through the Gospel of Luke verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're taking a short break to do something um, in John 3.16. It's going to be a five-part message on John 3.16, the Gospel in a nutshell. So, let's read the text. You might be able just to quote the text. Probably can. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And Father, we ask now that your spirit would be poured out upon this congregation of people that you love. These precious souls that will spend eternity in heaven or hell, that need the gospel, that need Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help me to preach out of a, a fullness of spirit and a passion for the truth to help people really get the gospel and really love it and really be thrilled by it. In Jesus' name, amen. God throughout history has shown his love in all kinds of ways. All kinds of ways. He showed his love by creating this world and then creating a man and a woman and giving them dominion and authority over all of his creation. And then he showed his love to Adam by putting him to sleep and taking one of his ribs and fashioning it into a woman and bringing the woman to the man to be his helper and his beloved and his wife and his companion. God showed love to the first pair after they sinned by giving a promise. He gave a promise that one of the descendants of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. God showed his love later by actually killing some animals and taking their skins and clothing this naked couple so that their nakedness would not be revealed. Later on, God showed his love when he was about to destroy the world with a flood. But Noah found grace in his eyes, and so God instructed him to prepare an ark so that he and his family would be preserved through that worldwide judgment. Later on, God showed his love by calling a man named Abraham and leading him out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of idolatry, into a land that he would show him. Later down the line, the grandson of Abraham, Jacob, was in great need because there was going to be a great famine in the land. And God showed his love by sending Jacob's son Joseph into Egypt as a slave, as a prisoner eventually, but then lifted out of prison to be the right-hand man of the Pharaoh and coming up with a plan to save Egypt and all the surrounding areas when the famine would hit. Later, God showed his love to the children of Israel when they were crying out in bondage in Egypt. And God came down and heard their cry and sent them a deliverer, Moses. Later, God sent his love and showed his love to them by instructing them to take the blood of a lamb and smear it on the doorposts so that when the destroying angel came through, their firstborn son would not be smitten and killed. God showed his love later when they were traveling through, away from Egypt and traveling, and they came to the Red Sea, and God instructed Moses to lift up the staff in his hand, and the waters parted, and the children of Israel went through on dry ground, and then the waters came down and destroyed all of their enemies. And you know, I could go on and on and on and on showing how God has demonstrated his love, but I don't want to talk about those things today. I want to talk about the greatest display of God's love to this sin-cursed, rebellious world. 
I want to talk about the cross. I want to talk about the next seven words in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, that's the first six words, for the next seven, that he gave his only begotten son. You want to talk about how God has showed his love for this rebellious, sinful, corrupt, depraved world? He showed it through the cross. If you've ever doubted, I don't know, has anyone here ever had times of doubt? Was, does God really love me or not? You don't have to go anywhere else other than the cross to know the answer to that question. Time after time after time, as you read through the New Testament, you find that when God says, here, let me show you that I love you, he points to the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at the life of Jesus. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Paul said, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Or he says in Galatians 2.20, Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. Or Paul will say in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Or 1 John 4.10, And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or John again in the book of Revelation he says, to him who loves us and has released us from our sins in his blood. You see the connection between love and the giving, the self-giving of sacrifice to death? Over and over and over, we see that love is displayed in the cross. So this morning, my goal is to help you see that God giving up his son was the greatest gift that God could ever give. There could be no greater gift than that. And I want to try to do that in three ways. I want to ask three questions of the text. Number one, who did God give? Number two, how did he give him? Number three, why did he give him? Number one, who did God give? What does the text say? His only begotten son. His only begotten son. Now let's try to break the meaning of his only begotten son down a little bit to understand it better. God's only begotten son was God's, number one, unique son. Unique. You know, most of the newer translations don't use the word begotten anymore. If you look at the ESV or the NIV or any of these modern translations, the NASB is, um, it follows the old King James. It, it mentions only begotten. But the newer translations have dropped that. And there's a reason they've done that. It's because only begotten is difficult to translate. It really literally means one-of-a-kind son. God gave his one-of-a-kind son. There was no one like Christ. He's unique. He's incomparable. He's unparalleled. Now, God does have lots of other sons besides Jesus. Did you know that the angels are called God's sons? Job 38.7, when God laid the foundation of the world, the sons of God shouted for joy. Well, there weren't any people created yet. So these are talking about the angels, God's sons. And it it's, uh, makes sense to call angels sons of God because they don't have any parents that have given them life. God himself created all of them specially from his very hand. So God is the father of the angels in that sense. The angels are sons of God through creation. But you know there's other sons of God too? Sons of God being believers in Jesus Christ. Christians. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love 
He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. So believers, those who have faith in Jesus Christ are the sons of God. Because of God's great love, He predestined us to adoption as sons, the Scripture says. But you know, Jesus isn't like a believer, and Jesus isn't like an angel. He's in a class all by Himself. He's the only begotten. He's the one-of-a-kind Son. But secondly, Jesus is God's eternal Son. Not just the unique Son. He's the eternal Son. Jesus, when He was confronted by some religious leaders in John chapter 8, in verse 58, He said, Before Abraham was born, I am. Now that's a fascinating little sentence right there. Before Abraham was born, not I was, I am. I just am. I always was and I always will be. I, I am. You see, what Jesus was doing there is deliberately quoting from Exodus 3.14. Do you remember the story of how um, Moses is confronted by the Lord to go and lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? And Moses says, well, Lord, they're going to want to know who talked to me what am I supposed to tell him? What's your name? And God says, just tell him I am sent you. Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus is deliberately taking the name of God and applying it to himself. He's the eternal one. He's the self-existent one. Right? The one who says, I am, says, I always was and always will be. I just am. I am always am. <laughs> he just is. The, the prophet Micah said in Micah 5.2, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of what? Eternity. Not just from the days of the beginning, from the days of eternity, the goings forth of Jesus Christ have been taking place. So Jesus is the unique son, but he's also the eternal son. No beginning, no end. But thirdly, He is the Divine Son. And we could have figured this out from the first two, couldn't we? Unique, eternal, but Jesus Christ is the Divine Son. In John 1.18, Scripture says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Now think about that. Earlier in John, it calls Him the Son. Now it's calling Him God. The only begotten God, referring to Jesus Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father, He's explained the Father. He calls Him God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of Christ, it says that He is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of His nature. Not just a close approximation of His nature. The exact representation of the Father's nature. In other words, He's the outshining of God's glory. He's the visible display. God put on display for this world. Down there in Hebrews 1 verse 6, God commands all the angels to worship Him. Now, last time I checked my Bible, nobody's supposed to worship anybody else but God. But God is commanding the angels to worship Jesus. And then in verse 8, God says to Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So beyond any shadow of a doubt, this Jesus, 
whom we celebrate as coming into the world this time of the year is none other than Lord Jehovah, God Almighty, God's other self, you might say, the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of God, maker of the worlds, coming into this world. But that's not all. He's not just the unique Son, the eternal Son, the divine Son. He's also the beloved Son. The beloved Son. And this gets deep. Do you remember that story back in Genesis 22 when God appeared to Abraham and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, well, here I am. He said, Abraham, take now your son, your only son, the son whom you love, Isaac, and take him and offer him up as a burnt offering on the mountain to which I'm going to show you. Isaac was the son of Abraham's love. And you know the New Testament says that exactly the same about Jesus Christ. At his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Colossians 1.13, for he has rescued us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And Jesus in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, praying to God, he says, Father, you love me before the foundation of the world. Now try to imagine, if you can, the intensity and the degree of love that was going on between father and son before the foundation of the world. Do you think God needed angels and needed some people because he was a little bit lonely up in heaven? You know, he just, no, no, no. Out of the overflow of God's great heart, he created angels, he created a world, he created people to display his glory. But he didn't need it. He was perfectly content and perfectly happy in the fellowship of the triune God, the, the, the nature of God himself. So the Father loved the, the Son. Do you remember last week we talked about how God loved the world? And it's a certain kind of love. It's an in spite of love. God will love us in spite of who we are and what we've done. The love that the Father has for Jesus is completely different. It's a because of love. God loves Jesus because of what he sees in him. The perfection of his nature. That Christ loves holiness and hates iniquity. There is no jarring between the members of the Godhead. There's perfectly, there's this perfect harmony and synchronization. They're, they love each other supremely because they see such beauty and infinite glory in one another. So the Father loves the Son. Jesus is the unique Son, the eternal Son, the divine Son, and the beloved Son. And my goal, remember, is to convince you that God has given the greatest gift that He ever could give. And we know that's true because of who he gave. He didn't give some measly little holy angel or some human being or even a holy human being, if there were such a one. He gave his very son. Now let's go on to the second question. How did God give? How did he give? Well, he gave in two ways. He gave his son sacrificially and spontaneously. First of all, sacrificially. For God so loved the world that he gave. The meaning is he gave over. He gave him up. He devoted him to destruction. The next verse says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him should be saved. So what does it mean for God to give his Son if you interpret it by the very next verse? It means to send his Son. The giving of the Son in verse 16 is the same as the sending of the Son in verse 17. 
So for God to give up his son means that he's sending him from heaven to earth on a mission. It's a mission to give up his life and as to pay a ransom for many, to lay down his life, to redeem a people for himself, to exalt his great name, to bring glory to who he is. So he gave sacrificially. Paul says in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? God didn't spare his son. Now, what does it mean to spare something? It means to spare them pain, doesn't it? And suffering, you want to protect them. God didn't protect the son. He didn't shield the son. He didn't spare him. God didn't send Jesus down here on a three-week vacation to the Bahamas and then come back home. He sent him down here to experience the derision and the contempt and the mockery and the shame and the humiliation and the torture and the scourging and the sufferings and ultimately to give up his life. It's a sacrificial giving of the son. Have any of you ever seen that short little movie? I think it's about 15 minutes. It's a, a Czechoslovakian movie with subtitles. It's called either The Bridge. The Bridge is the English version, but in Czechoslovakia, it's called Most. Well, the, the story goes like this. There is a, a drawbridge operator, and he's going to work one day, and he takes his son with him. And he just loves this son to pieces. That comes out in the first part of the movie. But he says, okay, dad's got to go into the engine room and I've got to do my work. Uh, why don't you go down by the shore of the lake and just play? And later on, after I'm all done here, we'll go and we'll have some fun together. So the little boy goes down to the lake. The dad goes up into the engine room and there's a steamship coming through the channel. And so he hits the lever so that the drawbridge opens up so that the ship can come through. Now... A train is supposed to be coming two hours later, but it's coming early. And the little boy is down by the lake, and he looks up, and he sees this, this train barreling down the tracks, off in the distance. And he starts yelling to his dad, because his dad told him it's going to be an hour later. And he says, Dad, Dad, the, the train's coming. But his dad is in the engine room, and he can't hear his son. He can't hear the whistle blow. He's occupied with other things. And it's too far for this son to run to where his dad is to tell him. The, the lever's not that far away. He thinks he can just run down the tracks and hit this other lever that will cause that drawbridge to come down so that all the people on the train can be saved. If he doesn't do that, they're all going to go into that body of water and they're all going to drown. And so the little boy runs down the train tracks. He finds the lever. And as he's trying to pull the lever, he falls down into this gearbox. And he's trapped down there. And right as his little son is falling into the gearbox, the father turns his eyes and sees what's happening. But at the same instant, he sees the train coming. And he's got this awful decision to make. What do I do? If I pull the lever, I'm going to save everyone on the train, but my little boy's going to be crushed in that gearbox. But if I run now and save my little boy, everybody on that train is going to die. And you can see the anguish on his face as he's trying to figure out, what do I do? What do I do? And in the very last instant, he pulls the lever. The drawbridge comes down, and his little boy screams as he is crushed by that gearbox. Everyone on the train is saved. The boy dies. And then the, the scene shows all the people on the train smoking cigarettes and talking and laughing, and they're completely oblivious to the sacrifice that this man has just made. 
You know, the Bible says the Lord was pleased to crush him. God was pleased to crush his son for the likes of us. Most, most people in this world are just oblivious to what God has done. They don't know. And even if we tell them, they don't care. But that's the love of God. It was a sacrificial giving. And secondly, it was a spontaneous giving of the son. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean simply that nobody was asking God to give a savior. No one was seeking after. Father, God, I'm such a, a, a vile, corrupt sinner. I, I'm under your wrath. I need somebody or something to save me. Would you, would you please do something? Send a savior, Lord. Nobody was doing that. Nobody had ever even conceived of the plan of salvation by which God would redeem a people for himself. No, nobody even came up with a plan. Nobody knew it. Nobody understood it. They couldn't have asked for it. In fact, in Romans chapter 10, verse 20, the scripture says, I was found by those who did not seek for me. I was made manifest to those who didn't ask for me. The gift of the Son was unsought. It was not conceived by man. It was unbought. There was nobody deserving of it, nobody worthy of it. God spontaneously, from this great heart of generosity and love, came up with a plan himself spontaneously and gave. When the world wasn't looking for it, when the world wasn't asking for it, and the world wasn't worthy of it. It was sacrificial. It was spontaneous. But thirdly, why did God give the Son? Well, our text says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God gave the Son so the sinners wouldn't perish, but have life. God gave the Son to save sinners. But let's go a little bit deeper than that. God gave the Son to be our substitute. That's how we will not perish, but have eternal life. He'll send someone who will come in our place, our room, and our stead. You know, have you ever heard of the expression, a public person? The president is a public person. When the president declares war, all of us in America now are at war. Now, you may have I didn't want to go to war. Well, it didn't matter. The, the president made the decision, and now the whole nation's at war. Jesus Christ came as a public person. He came as the federal representative. He came as the head of a new race of people. He came down to be the substitute for all those who would ever believe upon him. So here he comes into the world. And Isaiah 53, 6 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now did you see the principle of substitution there? All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us have turned away. But so the punishment should be falling on us, right? But instead, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall over here on him. Here's the innocent, holy, righteous one. Here's a bunch of wicked ones. And this one takes the place. He stands in their stead. You know, during the Civil War, there was a custom that if someone was just unable to go to war for some reason, they could appoint a substitute. Well, there was a man named Blake in, in the northern 
states. And his wife had just died. <clears throat> he had three small children. He had been drafted, but he didn't know how in the world he's ever going to go because there was no one to take care of his three children. But he had a best friend, a neighbor that lived next door, and one day Charlie came over to his house and he said, you know, Blake, I've been thinking about this. I know that you've been drafted. I know that you're needed around the home. Somebody needs to take care of those three little kids. I've decided to go in your place. I'm going to be your substitute. And Blake was just overwhelmed with gratitude and love. And he says, I, I, I can't believe you would do that for me. Thank you. Thank you so much. And so then Charlie enlisted. Sadly, in the very first battle he went into, he was shot and killed. And when Blake found out about that, he traveled to the scene of the battle. He looked through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other corpses there on the battlefield until he found Charlie's corpse. He loaded it on his wagon. He brought it back home to the gravesite right there by his church house where they had both gone to church. And he buried his friend. And then he got out his hammer, a chisel, and a piece of marble, and he started chiseling away. And the longer he chiseled, the more the great tears would, were falling down on that piece of marble. And he worked at it. He wasn't a sculptor. It was a, a crude thing that he was coming up with. But by the time he was done, he placed that little piece of marble by the, by the grave. And when people came by, all they saw were four little words. He died for me. And that's exactly the same truth that we have in the gospel. We have a substitute who's gone to war on our behalf, who has defeated sin, death, and hell, and Satan. And he did it not for himself. He did it for us. So why did God give this son? To save sinners? To be our substitute? Thirdly, to satisfy God's justice. To satisfy God's justice. You see, God is an absolutely holy being. He's absolutely just. Maybe we can't really relate that well to God in this aspect because maybe we don't value justice as highly as God does. God values justice, righteousness, doing what is right, which includes punishing sin. Do you know Exodus 34, 7 says that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished? He will by no means, you can be absolutely sure about this, you can take this to the bank, God is going to punish all sin. He will. He cannot just sweep it under the rug or turn the other way or just kind of pretend it doesn't exist. He has to because of the very nature of who he is. He has to deal with that sin as a crime against his holiness and his glory. It's a devaluing of his glory. So what does God do then? Well, what is the demands of the law? What does the law say? Ezekiel 18.4, The soul that sins shall surely die. Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. James 1.15, When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Death is God's punishment upon every single sin that we've ever committed. And so if Jesus is going to come into this world and satisfy divine justice, he's got to take the penalty for sin, which is death. He's got to die the sinner's death. Why did he come? 
to satisfy divine justice in its full. Jesus paid to the very last cent everything that his people owed. It's been paid for. That's why you can say, it's finished from the cross. Redemption had been accomplished and it's finished forever. The Bible says he is sanctified forever. Those who are coming to God through Christ. So, Christ came, God gave him over to save sinners, to be their substitute, to satisfy God's justice, and fourthly, to appease God's wrath. Now this is one of the subjects that some people are squeamish about. They don't want to even imagine that God could be a God of wrath. If you were to go back into the 1700s and go into um, the congregational church where Jonathan Edwards was preaching, you would hear a lot about the wrath of God. It, our, our day and age has completely shifted in our Christian culture from what it used to be. People in previous centuries, the Puritans and then the evangelical leaders of the 18th and 19th century understood God in his fullness and they weren't afraid to talk about it. And so I'm not going to be afraid to talk to you about it this morning because it is essential that you understand what God has done for you in Christ. There is a biblical word to describe the removing of wrath. Anybody know that word? Propitiation. In Him is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, maybe you've never heard that word before. It simply means a sacrifice that turns away wrath. A sacrifice that turns away wrath. This last week, I bought a new iPad. Well, it's not exactly new. It's refurbished, but it's new to me. It's pretty cool. So if I were to bring my iPad today, and then after the service, I, I leave it up here on the podium, and then decide I have to go use the bathroom, and some of you jokesters decide to play a trick on me, and so you get my iPad, and you start throwing it like a Frisbee to each other, and then one of you uh, throws it, but it gets away, and it smashes against the wall into a thousand pieces, and right as I'm walking back into the room, I see it smash against the wall. How am I going to feel about that? <laughs> I'm not going to be real happy. In fact, I'm going to be pretty mad. But if you run up to me and you say, Brian, I, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I don't know what, I don't know why I did that. It's stupid. But here, here, let me make it up to you somehow. And you start putting $100 bills in the palm of my hand. There's four $100 bills, five $100 bills, six $100 bills, seven $100. I said, oh, stop. Seven $100 bills. That's enough. I'm not mad anymore. This only costs $350. That's $700. I'm happy. You've turned away my wrath. <laughs> See, they've given a propitiation to satisfy my, my angers. It, my anger's gone, and it's been replaced with joy and love because a sacrifice, a gift has been made. And that's what God has done for us in Christ. He has propitiated the wrath of God. He's turned it away. So... Who did God give? The only eternal, divine, beloved Son. How did He give Him? Sacrificially, spontaneously. That's very good. You guys got my outline down, don't you? Why did He give Him? To save sinners, to be our substitute, to satisfy His justice, and to appease His wrath. Now, let me draw out some lessons for you. Number one, the greatest evil in the world is sin. The greatest evil in this world is sin. How do we know that? Because it took the death of God to deal with it. 
If you don't know how evil sin is, just look to that cross. If sin isn't so bad, what's the Son of God doing hanging on that cross, bleeding and dying? If God could have dealt with this any other way, any other easier way, he surely would have done it. Sin is so bad that it took the death of God to take care of it. So how do we look at sin? Do we look at sin the way God does? How does God look at sin? He hates it. It's evil. It's repulsive. How do we look at sin? Well, I'm afraid we don't look at it the way God does too often. We need to hate sin. We need to see it as ugly and gross and revulsive and re repulsive to us. We need to repent of sin when God shows it to us. We need to kill it. Romans 8.13 says that we need to put to death the deeds of the body if we ever expect to live. We need, the, the old theologians called that the mortification of sin. We need to kill it in our lives. We need to have the same perspective towards sin that God does. The greatest evil in the world is sin. Second lesson. The greatest sin in the world is to reject Jesus Christ. Sin's the greatest evil, and to reject Christ is the greatest sin. Why is that so? It's because you are rejecting the greatest possible gift that God was able to make. You're snubbing your nose, you're treating with contempt the gift God has given to hu the human race. Let's say you ladies have a, a husband who's a low-down, no-account guy who's committed all kinds of vile crimes. He's been arrested, locked up in prison for life halfway across the world. But you still love him for some reason. And so you decide you're going to get your five kids. You're going to steal, beg, and borrow the money to get plane tickets to go and visit him because it's his birthday coming up. And so you take that plane and you go to visit your husband in prison and you're waiting for hours in that cell I'm not the cell, the waiting room, waiting for him to come and see you. And it's cold, you're hungry, you spend every cent you had just to get there. And finally, after hours, he comes out from the prison into the waiting room, and he takes one look at you and he says, what are you doing here? I didn't ask for you to come here. What are you doing here? Just get out of here, just leave. I don't ever want to see you again. And he turns around and walks back into the prison. How's that going to make you feel? Crushed, right? Totally crushed. Hurt. God has given a... F <laughs> you can't even compare the two gifts in the situation. An infinitely greater gift to the human race and the greatest sin in the world must be to see the gift and say, no thanks. I'm good enough without that. I don't need that. I'm not as bad a person as... That, that I would need something like that to save me. I'm okay, Lord. The greatest evil in the world is sin. The greatest sin in the world is to despise and to reject Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the only way of salvation is the cross. That's a third lesson to be drawn out of this. Because like I said a minute before, if there was any other way of salvation, God would have chosen it. Do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? crying out in agony and prayer, and he said, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. What cup is he talking about? Well, if you read the Old Testament, references to a cup, it's the cup of the horrible, awesome wrath of God. Jesus knew what he was going to face on that cross. It wasn't just physical torture. 
That was the least of his worries. Jesus Christ was going to receive in his person, I can't even imagine this, the all-powerful wrath of a holy God coming upon him. Think about what he experienced at the cross. Loneliness, his disciples fled from him, right? Loneliness, agony of soul. Where do you find those kinds of things taking place? It's in hell, isn't it? Loneliness, outer darkness, you're cut off, you're alone. Agony of soul, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus, in a very real way, was taking our hell as he was hanging there on the cross, bearing the wrath. See, there's only two places where God's wrath will be experienced and where justice will be satisfied. It's at the cross or in hell. And Jesus Christ there at the cross is paying for sin. If there was any other way that God could save sinners other than Jesus going to the cross, God would have chosen it. He asked him, if it's possible, let this cap pass. But he drank that cup down to its very last dregs. It wasn't possible. Now, if the cross is the only way to salvation, why do we ever try any other way? But we do all the time. Now, not necessarily those of you who know Christ. But if you don't know Christ, and before you came to know Christ, I'm sure you've tried other ways. The way of Muhammad will worship Allah. The way of Buddha, enlightenment. The way of Hare Krishna. The way of Joseph Smith and the Golden Tablets and the Book of Mormon. Or the way of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. Or the way of bowing down to statues, repeating rote prayers from a rosary, venerating Mary, praying to saints, thinking somehow through these actions, God will accept you. The way of church attendance. That hits a little bit closer to home to us, doesn't it? Lots of church attendance will get me in, right? I'll just get baptized. That'll make me go to heaven, right? If I just do enough good deeds, then I'll be good enough. No, no. Those are all other ways. The only way that God has given, well, what does four, uh, Acts 4.12 say? There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. It's Christ lifted up. Do you remember that Old Testament story about the people who are being bitten by these fiery serpents and they're dropping dead all over the place and they're crying out to Moses, save us, save us from these snakes. And so Moses goes to the Lord and the Lord says, Moses, construct this brass pole with a serpent on the top of it and tell them, if you get bitten, all you've got to do is just look to that serpent on the pole. And if you look there, you'll live. Now Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so, I, the Son of Man, must be lifted up that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Christ crucified is the only hope for this sin-cursed world. It's their only hope. The cross is the only way. And I, if, if you're here this morning and you have never embraced the cross with all your heart, don't go home today without doing that. Trust Him. Turn away from anything that would keep you away from that cross and make a beeline for it and bow down before it and grab onto it and say, I'm never going to let go of this. This is my only hope. I'm going down into hell if I don't hold a hope, 
have a hold of this cross right here. So the cross is the only way of salvation and the only adequate response to the cross is absolute surrender to Jesus Christ. God gave up how much for us? Everything. He emptied the treasures of heaven when he gave Christ. He opened up this treasure chest and took out that pearl of great price that was beyond the value of anything left. And he says, here, I'm giving this for the world. God gave everything. Will you give all to him? I think that's a legitimate question we need to ask from John 3.16. He gave up everything. What about you? Have you responded by giving up your life to Christ? Have you ever completely surrendered yourself and said, Lord, everything I am is yours. All my money, all my possessions, they're yours. All my time, it's yours. Everything I am, everything I have, I'm just laying it down. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul urges, because of the mercies of God, in Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, basically, the blessings that flow from the cross, I urge you, because of those mercies, give your life. Take your body and present it a living and holy sacrifice. So how do we do that practically? We can't see God. How do we love a God we can't see? Well, there's many ways, but one of the ways you do that is by loving people whom you can see. Serving people with real needs. Are you a servant of others? When you come here on a Sunday morning, is it your objective to come and serve, or is it your objective to come and just take and receive and go? Do you come in late? Leave as soon as the thing is over? You're not looking for other people, their needs. You're not wanting to, to pray with somebody who's hurting. You're not asking, how can I get involved? How can I serve here? Do you need help in the nursery? Do you need help coming early to set things up? You see, that's the heart of a Christian. He's a servant. Do you remember our identity? We are a family of missionary servants who are on mission to make disciples. We're servants. That's our basic core identity. Jesus was a servant, wasn't he? He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to lay down his life a ransom for many. And we are called to be like our master. So I want to exhort you this morning. If you're just a taker, determines you're going to become a giver. You're going to show your love to God by serving people, by finding, okay, what, what gifts do I have to offer? What, what money, what time, what gifts, what abilities, what can I do to show my love to God by being a, a giver and a servant to people whom I can see? That's the question I want you to be thinking about and asking. God gave His only Son. He gave Him a great, infinite cost. And He gave Him to redeem you from the awful judgment that is to come. May God help us to love him in return with all that we have. Let's pray. Lord, would you impress these serious and sober truths on the heart of your church that they would see what you've done, Lord. They really see it. The fog would be dissipated and, Lord, they would be able to see the glories of Yosemite. And they would say, whoa, 
I see it. I'm overwhelmed. And Lord, may just a sight of the gospel of Jesus transform your children. Work in them, Lord, to will and to do of your great good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen.